Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Uh, we're fortunate to have Dr. Bill Takeshita, who is the Chief of Optometric Services and Coordinator of the Children's Program for the Fed Center for the Partially Sighted, as well as uh, Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute, um, on this call tonight, providing all this great information. We're also being able to um, have some two wonderful guests tonight, um, uh, Jerry Hart, who is a vision specialist from Blind Babies Foundation in Northern California, and Diana Dennis, who is the Director of Children's Programs for TLC for Blind here in Los Angeles. Um, and Dr. Bill, we're just thrilled to have you as our guest tonight for the topic, um, CBI, Functional Activities for Child at Home. Thank you very much. Yes, well, thank you again, Sue, for putting this on every every month we have these on the second Tuesday of the month. And for all of you who this might be your first time, because we have people from all over the country this evening, um, this type of recording is available. It's being recorded by Airs LA. And Airs LA is a nonprofit organization that records many different things, including lectures, different types of interviews, and magazines, periodicals, and journals for people with vision impairment. So if you go to www.airsla, and that's A-I-R-S-L-A dot org, you could find previous interviews and discussions that we have had at the Braille Institute. You could also find these different podcasts available at the Braille Institute webpage, and that's at www.brailleinstitute.org. Again, that's www.brailleinstitute.org. So this gives you a good chance to share this with other families or other professionals or just to kind of review uh, what you might not have caught tonight. But tonight we're really talking about, I think, what I feel is the most important topic to talk about today in the field of pediatric low vision, and that is working with children with cortical vision impairment. As many of you may be aware of, that cortical vision impairment is now the leading cause of vision impairment that we do see in children. And this is something that's quite staggering because when I got into the field of vision care about 25 years ago or so, it really wasn't that common. We found that most children had problems with their eyes, and when they had problems with the eyes, an ophthalmologist might be able to perform surgery, or low vision optometrists would prescribe glasses and low vision aids, or we would use different types of low vision technology, such as CCTVs to help them to see. But today, with so many children surviving premature birth, different types of brain hemorrhage, other types of very, very serious medical disorders, we're finding that many, many children who survive these situations also have what's called cortical vision impairment. At our center, uh, the Center for the Partially Sighted in Los Angeles, in fact, 51% of the children that we see have perfectly healthy eyes, but it's the visual parts of the brain that are not processing the information normally, and that's why they don't see well. So this really creates a very, very unique situation because the ophthalmologist cannot perform surgery on these children's eyes because their eyes are fine. We cannot really just give them glasses because these children, again, also have normal focusing eyes. But the problem with cortical vision impairment is that the visual center of the brain does not process visual information normally. Now, if each of you were to feel the very back of your head, if you put your palm on the very back of your head, that whole region in the back of the brain is called the occipital lobe of the brain. And the occipital lobe of the brain is the region of the brain where visual information is being processed. Now, what we find is that many children who are born prematurely or other children who have been born after a full-term pregnancy may suffer from the lack of oxygen, and it affects that region of the brain. This lack of oxygen may be because if it's a breech birth or the umbilical cord is wrapped around the child's neck, some children just aren't breathing well when they're born. And we also see that some children will swallow merconium. This aspiration of merconium affects these different areas of the brain. Another cause of cortical vision impairment is that many children will suffer from hemorrhages, something that is called intraventricular hemorrhage. 
where there's a hemorrhage within the brain, and that is something that damages that region as well. In other situations, we might see there is something that is called periventricular leukomalacia, or if you're looking at reports from medical charts, you look for PVL. And when we see PVL, these children very frequently will have cortical vision impairment. So tonight what we're really going to talk about is, you know, what do we do and what can be done? And here in California, I think that we're really very fortunate because there's so many people who are very experienced in working with cortical vision impairment. And tonight we're going to go ahead and talk to these people about this as well. But the first thing that I want to remind everyone is the different roles of the professionals who work with a child with cortical vision impairment. The first professional who will work with a child with CVI is generally going to be the pediatric ophthalmologist. The pediatric ophthalmologist is a medical doctor who will investigate and inspect the different structures of the eye as well as the different regions of the brain to try to make that diagnosis of cortical vision impairment. Now, in many cases, Cortical vision impairment is a diagnosis that is made by exclusion. What that means is that we don't necessarily put children through these very, very invasive tests, such as CAT scans and MRIs and such, because that could potentially be dangerous. But we do look at the eyes, and if the eyes look healthy and the child just does not seem to have the normal vision, many times by exclusion we will say that it is most likely a neurological disorder that's causing that vision impairment. Now, the second doctor that the child probably then should see would be what is called a low-vision optometrist or a low-vision ophthalmologist. These are doctors who specialize in evaluating the functional vision of children and adults with low vision. Now, there are some low-vision doctors who specialize in vision development, And these are doctors who could tell you exactly what does the child see. Now, when we see children such as this, we first want to find out whether or not the child is able to focus properly. This is what's called a refraction test. And we don't have to ask the children, you know, which looks clear one or two, because obviously many infants don't talk. But we have instruments and techniques so we can measure how the child is able to focus. Now, many children who have CVI also have seizure disorders, and when they are given medications to control their seizures, this often affects how the eye muscle can focus. So as a result, we often will prescribe glasses for these children to help them to focus because the anti-seizure medications affect their ability to focus. One thing that you can do is that if you do see a child who is visually impaired, You could look at the pupils of their eyes, and if you notice that their pupils are large and they don't focus and constrict very well, these children might be suffering from focusing problems that's related to the anti-seizure medication. During the pediatric low vision examination, we also look for other bits of information, such as can the child see better if we position an object in front of him or her? or off to the side, or to the top, or to the bottom. We then want to find out, does a child see things better at a distance of 8 inches, 16 inches, 24 inches? What distance? Third, we want to find out, are there certain colors and patterns of stripes that the child may see better? We find many children with cortical vision impairment really are very, very stimulated by looking at black and white patterns and red and white. Number four, we try to find out whether or not the child is more aroused visually if we have a a target that is moving, such as a spinning drum or a pom-pom with glittery lights, or if it's something that's going to be stationary. So we do many, many different types of findings like this, and we put this in a report, And then we share it with some of the early intervention specialists, teachers for the visually impaired, vision impairment specialists. And what they then do is they then go into the homes and they help the families. So 
<clears throat> I want to go ahead and, first of all, uh, ask you, Diana, uh, tell us about your program at TLC, and when you get a referral of a child with CVI, what's the first thing that you folks do after you get the re- medical reports from the ophthalmologist and the low vision optometrist? Uh, well, the first thing that we do when we get a referral is we contact the family um, and we schedule our initial visit. So we do, you know, of course, after reviewing the reports that we have, we, we do an additional uh, interview, so to speak, or meeting with the family and gathering more information. So if the child's already been identified as having CVI and there's, you know, enough detail in the uh, reports, then we usually talk about where the child's at and what their needs might be. And, you know, that can range from a child who's already maybe involved in services, but the family's not feeling like they have the right support, or a child who's just at the very beginning of the stage of um, the referral and needing the very initial steps of having a functional vision assessment performed in the home, you know, and working with them and really deciding what, if anything, you know, the child's looking at at that stage and gathering more information from their observations and then actually doing, um, you know, things, um, having the child fixate or look at maybe a red pom-pom. We almost always on our initial visits have, you know, bright mylar red pom-pom or shiny mylar paper or slinkies, things that will um, initially give, get a child's attention. And, uh, Jerry, how about at the Blind Babies Foundation when you see children, what are, what are some of the different types of visual stimulation toys or tools that you find to be most helpful to take when you see the children? And do you guys also see the children at their homes, or do they come to your center? No, we don't have a center. We, um, we see children at their homes, and then also um, we'll see them um, – at their therapist's office, um, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, like it, with their OT and PT or, or at their early intervention program, but, but most of what we're seeing them is at home. And, what, and are the toys- the, what, are, what are some of the types of toys? I know that you were telling us earlier before we started the program tonight that, my goodness, you have so many years of experience in this, uh, both in Texas and here in California. But uh, what what are some of those favorite toys that you find are helpful when you're doing your initial assessment? Well, the the toys that um, that Diana talked about, the um, mylar pom poms, um, fluore- um, fluorescent slinkies, um, toys. Um, I don't know what you would call it. It kind of looks like a flashlight, but it's a dome that has spinning lights inside. Um, that's something that <clears throat> children will sometimes look at first. And I usually um, will work with the babies um, either using a toy bar or using the the little baby arches, you know, the pad with the baby arch. And I take down the toys that are on it and put those types of toys hanging from waistband elastic so that they're so that any movement the baby makes is gonna make those toys move. So they start to to learn that um that they can reach and they can grasp. And I find that if they if they interact with a toy, it's easier for them to see it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, Sue, in uh, Los Angeles County at Braille Institute, when when your staff and yourself go and you do an uh, initial assessment, um, what are some of the things that you most often tell the families and what are some of the things that you find that families sometimes is a little bit uh, under the wrong impression about the services you provide. I know that one of the things that many parents, they say to us is, can you get me a therapist to come and do vision therapy on my child every day? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and I, and I think it's, it's, it certainly is overwhelming. I think when you have a diagnosis and it's uh, as complex as CVI and cortical visual impairment, I think it's natural that, that you know, more services 
the better. You know, you, you, that's what you would think. Um, our, our, our program, um, you know, we, we are kind of a consultative program, and we do in-home program as well. We go into the family's homes. And our, our focus is to kind of try to uh, assess and observe and try to look at the interaction between the primary caregiver, usually the parent, and the baby as well to kind of determine what we can do to kind of help the family expand on what they're currently doing and help them with some tools. As, as I know that TLC and I know that Fine Babies Foundation does as well, um, I think one of the things that we try to do is um, look at where is the baby's interest, what is the family's interest, what are their concerns, and based upon what we can, uh, we can see within the interaction, uh, you know, in terms of understanding um, a bit about what the child might be able to see, we might be asking some questions like of the family, what do you think your baby is seeing now? What do you think they seem to like the most? Um, we'll just try to kind of elicit that information. And then with that, try to give the family suggestions and maybe leave them with, a, with some suggestions, some ideas, and, and uh, be able to you know, return and call back and do, like we, do, we typically do about once a month or twice a month kind of visits. And with that, we will, you know, give them some suggestions for what we see at that moment and then come back and then reassess and kind of talk to the family and see how things have gone. But we always try to leave something that we found was, you know, somewhat successful. We want to be able to see what we can be able to build on that child's strength. So we find that the child happens to like Mylar gift wrapping paper, which is one of my favorites. Um, it's that shiny Mylar gift, the kind of this, the tissue, it's actually Mylar. Um, it has a lot of, of strength, and so that even if the baby can, can hold on to a grasp, that it, typically it stays intact. But I think it's one of those things where I think, again, with parents' revision, it can be a great tool to, to increase motor, you know, fine motor as well as be able to gather visual alertness and visual attention. So that's kind of how we approach. But I know it's difficult these days because everyone's feeling like they would like to do more, but we're, you know, naturally restrained by our budgets and what we can do. Yeah, and I think that's something that's very, very important for the family members or the caregivers mm-hmm. to understand, too, is that the role of all of the early intervention staff and the teachers for the visually impaired and the vision impairment specialists and the child development specialists, all these people who are coming to work with the child, it's important that their job is really to educate and to inform the caretakers and the family how to do a lot of these types of vision stimulation activities as well because the vision specialist may be there for one hour once a week or one hour every other week, and that is not nearly enough as compared to what a parent or a caregiver can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you find that to be the case too, Jerry, in your program, that you really have to educate them how to do these activities that you yeah, want them Yes, and we also educate their therapist and their early intervention specialist mm-hmm. um, so that because so much of um, early intervention with with other uh, babies is visual so we really do a lot of in-servicing of the other professionals yeah. who yeah. work with these babies that's very important yeah Diana how about um, how do you manage the situation when the parents will often ask you, well, are these exercises, are we exercising my baby's eyes? Does my baby have a weak eye muscle? Do you find that they often get back to the question that, is there something wrong with the eyes? How do you redirect them back to the fact that it is something with the brain, not the eyes? Well, we really emphasize the importance of um, you know, using vision stimulation just as part of your natural everyday activities and being um, y- using the technique of what we call experiential and active learning so that the families understand really? that children really learn by doing and they learn by real actions with, their real, with real objects and real experiences. And so reminding families that, you know, it's, it's not about, exercises per se with the with the, the eyes but m- making sure that there's proper lighting and that, they, that you're have daily routines instilled into the um, everyday activities and so a child can be 
um, understand and pr predict the environment. So in the morning we wake up and mommy comes to pick me up and she greets me before she touches me and then we, you know, mm -hmm. maybe have a bath or whatever you do through your day. And so that each moment there's a, you know, teachable moment in your daily experiences so that it's um, much more meaningful, um, your everyday interactions, so that they learn through those actions, um, both either visually through the the lighting and the change of the experience or through just the experience. So, Yeah, I think that that's fantastic. Very, very important. And we often uh, get many parents when they come to our center and after we do our evaluation, we do recommend vision stimulation. Now, many times, and uh, you can then listen to the entire recording by going to the BrailleInstitute.org, www.brailleinstitute.org, and you could listen to the entirety of this along with going to www.airsla.org, A-I-R-S-L-A.org. One of the things that I make a point of is that when I inform a family that their child does have this vision problem, I really try to educate them about the importance of understanding that vision does not occur in the eyes, but it is something that takes place in the brain. And we explain to them about the Nobel Prize winning studies of Hubel and Weasel, where they took kittens and they raised them in different environments. The kittens that were raised in a normal environment with a lot of colors and patterns, they developed normal vision. But the kittens that were raised in an environment where they had their eyelids sutured shut, those kittens were blind. And this helps them to understand that the environment that the child is going to grow up in is going to affect the development of their vision. And the second part is that we also tell them that vision is learned and developed. What these scientists did is they took the blind kittens and they opened their eyelids and they stimulated them with colors and patterns and shapes. And what they found was that those blind kittens later did develop vision. In other words, those kittens that were once blind developed vision because of the vision stimulation. And these doctors were able to find that the stimulation caused a particular part of the brain to grow. And this is really what we're doing with children with cortical vision impairment is we are trying to stimulate that region of the brain to make those visual cells grow. Now, it's also very important that parents understand that vision directly affects the general development of children. And, Sue, maybe you could share a little bit about how you explain that to some of the families because families often are concerned, why is their child not sitting or crawling or walking or talking? How do you explain to them how vision affects their overall development? Well, I think um, in, in regard to that, again, it's, it's part of it's observation of the child and observation of the interaction between the caregiver, but also understanding that um, part of what we're looking at is, is um, really how the child is glo globally developing and how uh, by stimulating the vision, helping the child to be able to recognize that there are things within their visual fields that they can actually reach out to will give them a more purposeful understanding of what's beyond their themselves. I think that it's, it's again, it's challenging because you're looking at, at potential gains and how we can look at how the vision would would help the child to be able to develop the skills that they need um, to be able to reach and then eventually um, move and you know maybe pull pull to something or reach to something. Um, I, I think what we really need to do in that regard is just to help the family understand how um, the whole system, how the whole global development it works. So I, I think I think we just have to be really. Um, observational look at what the child is doing, help the family understand that that this, this, this specific skills may come a bit later because the child doesn't have the ability to do the initial and have the initial interaction with their environment that a child who is sighted would be. But then we try to accommodate that 
that baby and that child by adapting the environment to, to, to help them be able to utilize what residual vision they have and at the same time be able to give them the interest in wanting to explore outside of themselves, but again through things that interest that child and that baby or that baby. Yeah, and the important thing to understand is that two-thirds, two-thirds of the entire brain is involved in the process of vision. So when a child has problems due to cortical vision impairment, this affects some of the information that is being processed by the brain, and it can affect how a child perceives the world. In other words, a lot of kids, you'll see some kids and they tilt their head or they lean to one side. And that is often because the way their brain perceives the world, they see the world as slanting. For the child who cannot see a ball or a cup or a bottle on the table, those children are less likely to develop eye-hand coordination for reaching because they don't see it. Or if a child has reduced vision and they don't see a toy or their mother or father sitting 10 feet across the room, they may be less likely to crawl towards it. So one of the things that we do recommend is trying to increase the visibility of those objects in the surroundings to make the child have an easier time of seeing it. And that often first begins by using contrast and lighting. Uh, Jerry, what can you tell us about how you use contrast and lighting to make things easier for the child to see, to stimulate the brain? Um, you can use, um, like, bright pink tape around things. Um, you, can, you can do a um, gooseneck lamp over, um, over the area that you're wanting a child to look or just shine a flashlight on the area that you want a child to look. Um, I also will use, like, a black placemat if a child is going to be eating something like Cheerios to get more contrast or even um, put food on the light box, cover the light box with, um, with plastic wrap and then put food on the light box. Um, some of the light, one of the overlays on the light box has... Um, circles cut out so you can put things right in the circle where there's just light where you want them to look. Um, I also think it's important as well as uh, using contrast and illumination to to use um, what we call experiential learning so that the child starts to understand that the food doesn't just appear and the bottle doesn't just go in their mouth, so um, so you would take the baby with you when you're fixing the bottle, um, so they're experiencing, um, you know, putting the formula, you know, the bottle's empty, and you put the formula in, and you put the water in, and you heat it up, and shake it, you know, whatever, whatever you're going through to make the formula, and, and then... Um, then they get to to drink it, um, and also just you know, if something's in the refrigerator, you can you can also add a lot of language like you know, um, the food's in the refrigerator. We have to open the door, open shut, open shut. It's cold in the refrigerator. The um, the your bottle's on the shelf. We're going to take it out, and it's cold, and then we close the door. Um, the bottle's cold, and, and we'll heat it up to make it warm, and then you can drink it. So you're getting a lot of language in there, but you're also, um, there's, there's so many things that a sighted child learns through just watching the processes of, processes of uh, what you're doing that a blind child is, is missing. And so it almost sounds like, Jerry, that the vision stimulation activities that you set up for your families, this is just part of daily life. I mean, you go to the kitchen and you prepare a bottle. You let the child 
experience that, and there's vision stimulation at that time. While the child's eating, there's vision stimulation. While the child is drinking, there's vision stimulation. So it's not as though we have 20-minute aerobic exercise to do for the vision. The child no. experience. Yeah, not at all. When you're doing the laundry, you're taking, you know, the the laundry's in the basket and it's dirty, and you take it out of the basket and put it in the top of the washer. And you, when you turn the washer on, it shakes. And, you know, when it's quiet, that means it's finished, and then the clothes are warm, or they're, the clothes are wet, and you put them in the dryer, and when they're finished, the clothes are warm. And then then you can, you know, as the child gets older, you're doing... Um, you know, you separate out the socks, and then you can talk about, you know, daddy's socks are big and your socks are little, and, and you're learning just while you're doing everyday activities. That's great. I really like the way you're using language to develop language, and you're using temperature and touch, and you're using size, and that that's fantastic. And these are things where families really aren't going out there and having to spend a lot of extra money. These are things they have around the house, you know. Um, how about you, Diana? Can you tell us a little bit, too, do you, do you use the light box quite a bit, and how do you help families to increase the lighting if their house is too dark? Um, well, we do use the light boxes, and um, we really encourage families to use whatever, you know, objects they have within their home that, you know, you can use just regular rattles or whatever toys that, you know, are small enough that fit on the light box to um, have that be illuminated. So there isn't always happening to be special, you know, objects that need to be on the light box. But in terms of the house, and if it tends to be a dark house, we encourage, you know, as much natural lighting as possible or, as, as Jerry was saying, using, you know, gooseneck lamp or using flashlights or using toys like there's a standard... Um, I think it's Fisher-Price ring stacker that's got a light in it, you know, that that if the baby learns to push on the top or put the rings on the stacker, it lights up. Or, you know, having the child be, you know, if you have electric lighting in the house that's positioning the child to the back, you know, so their back is to the light, so the light isn't becoming a distraction or a, fixation necessarily, but, it, you know, using it to help illuminate what's ever in front of them. So uh, we do a lot with where we use things, they call them invisiboards that you can order, your teacher of the visually impaired can order, or you can just use like a black, part, you know, board presentation board to help reduce visual clutter. So, um, you know, if you have some lighting position behind the child and you want to have the object or the image or the person that they're wanting to, you want the child to look towards, you want to reduce the amount of visual clutter because children with CVI are often struggling with separating the foreground from the background. Um, and we do a lot with auditory and movement cues to help encourage child's looking behaviors. So shaking the you know bottle to get them to look and maybe reach for it before you give the bottle or um, encouraging them to look towards a toy that maybe is a lighted toy. Um, we encourage a lot of outdoor activities. We really, really want families to get out and not, you know, not to be afraid to go out and go for a walk or sit on the front lawn. We do a lot, and, the, um, you know, we're fortunate to have good weather most of the time, so we do a lot in indoor-outdoor play or um, going to the parks or, you know, meeting somewhere that's, you know, a nice grassy area so that a child can have... Um, as much lighting, you know, natural lighting as possible. Yeah, now, Diana, you had mentioned that children with CVI often have difficulties with finding an object in a cluttered background or foreground background, and I know that Jerry had said that for Cheerios. Sometimes they'll put a Cheerio on a black placemat. Um, what, what kind of suggestions if a child has a play area on the carpet, how can you help the child to find the toys a little bit easier? Let's say that they're carpet at home has a very complex pattern. What, what, what kind of suggestions do you give the family for that? Do you have them put a, a sheet or a blanket? or A blanket with a solid pattern or a tray. Usually we really encourage trays because um, tray play 
you know, if you drop an object on either a wooden tray or a plastic tray, you get a much better auditory response than if you just drop it on the carpet. And so we encourage that not only to help with orientation and um, a child's understanding of space and where an object might be, but also for an auditory response to create that visual response so that they drop it, they're more likely to be able to find it on, a, on something they've heard where they've dropped it as opposed to just losing it onto a busy carpet or just onto a quiet carpet. Um, and they're, so they, you can also tap on the wooden you know, tray to encourage them to look down um, where it's much more, gives more meaning, you know, sensory information to the child. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And it gives them a sense of understanding boundaries, I would imagine, exactly. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for children who, who have very severe motor limitations, um, I use marbles because those are children who can't get things into their mouth. So it's safe to use marbles. And I put a lot of marbles on the tray and just mm-hmm. put the child's hands, the child's um sitting between my legs and their hands are on the tray and any little movement of their fingers um, makes the marbles make a sound. The marbles come and then they roll back to the child's hand. And um, and the children seem um, very quickly to start to move their whole arm and then children who can't pick up anything um, because a marble will just get into their hand, start to learn how to pick up the marbles and drop them, you know, over many sessions of, of doing it. And I don't ever take their hand and do it for them. I just put their hands on it and wait. And with some kids, you have to wait a whole five minutes before they make any kind of movement. But um, That's great. But usually you'll, you'll get something. Yeah, so, so far, you know, gosh, we've talked about we could use different types of lamps, you know, gooseneck floor lamps or other types of ways of brightening up the room, using a, a solid carpet or blanket or sheet and putting toys on there or using a tray. But what about the position? Uh, I know that you had just said, Jerry, you often will place children between your legs and give them support. Um how do you prefer to start a child if it's a child who cannot sit quite well? Do you start while they're lying on their back, or do you use a car seat, or what suggestions do you have of what position to begin doing um, the vision stem? It really is de- dependent on the child. Um, you know, a lot of times I'm starting, um, you know, with the little, if it's Real little babies, I'm starting with the baby arches because that's just a more normal, you know, I want to keep the the experience normalized for the family. And would you, you know, I'm, differently. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not really certain if I know what is a baby arch. Um, there, most, most babies have a thing that's a, um, it's a little mat that has two arches that cross each other and there are toys hanging from it. Oh, but the okay. toys that so, so there's little holes and and there's toys that attach with rings. Yes, okay, I know what that is now. Yes, great. And most of them the toys are up kind of high. So I take those toys off and I um and I hang um waistband elastic with the toys that that Diana and I have talked about, like the slinky and and um, a pom pom, and and I'll use um, Mardi Gras beads, and I I double them over, um, tie them real tightly with um, waistband elastic, and then cut the end so so they can't catch their arm in them. Um, but babies really like the feel of that, and they're they're either gold or red or, you know, but they're they're shiny, um, and it, it's easy, you know, if they're hit, it's easy to make them move. Um, all of, all of these toys um, have that move.
movement quality when the when the child moves and accidentally touches them they get that movement and then they can see them better um, I'll also take a whisk a kitchen whisk and put a, a little cat ball inside and it makes it a rattle but it's easy for them if they swat it their hand kind of catches onto the tines oh and, that's um, great so yeah, so you insert the, the glittery kitten ball with the bell inside it, inside the whisk, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Now, Sue, I know that you and your staff uh, have really <laughs> been very creative and made many vision stimulation toys that spin and move. Can you share some of those that you have used? And I know they have been yeah. very, very successful with children <laughs> with CVI. Well, like I said, we uh, a lot of it. All these suggestions that Diana and Jerry have taken have just been absolutely incredible, and we're just, you know, like I said, we you know appreciate you all these suggestions. One of the things we've done is try to look at again the household items. Uh, what can we find around the homes that can be replicated as a vision simulation toy? And we've done quite a bit with oatmeal containers. I think everybody here kind of maybe has done, tried this who's on the line, but we've made optokinetic drums out of oatmeal containers, and uh, we have a. Uh, one of our staff members, her husband, has been volunteering to help us put the um, dowels on the um, oatmeal containers and with the black and white stripe patterns being able to wrap that around the container and then we can begin to replicate that process of having the OPK drum at home so the family can kind of begin to see how the child interacts with that before they would go to a medical appointment, say, for instance, and be presented with the same item. Uh, we've done things with baby bottles, small baby bottles, and uh, again, the black and white beans, pinto beans, and wrap it with electrical tape or wrap it with um, shiny metallic tape, again, to, get, to give more input, but also be able to provide the auditory with the beans and have it be a small enough item that can be sort of uh, held in the hand like a, like a rattle. And again, I'm sure these are items that you probably also have made, Jerry, and and Diana. Um, we've done other things like um, we've created, like we probably the easiest thing we do is just take um, uh, paper towel holders and wrap them in metallic paper, uh, the kind of shopping bags you get at the holidays especially, you know, the bright red or the bright um, silver metallic paper. And it can become a very um, disposable toy that can be made over and over again for a family um, that might be able to get the baby's arousal and, and interest. And by using that toy to see, kind of determine visual fields and be able to see um, at the distance the child might be and have interest in terms of reaching for it, it's just an easy thing for families to put together. Um, we've done other things like just cans with pennies in them. Again, a lot of these items are, are just typical homemade toys. One of our favorites is just taking a plain old black bowl that you can get at like the 99 cent store and wiffle balls. And that's one that becomes like an in and out toy that, again, you have this, the same process as you would with a tray, dropping it in, dropping it out. And it's just something that's available around the house that can be used just in everyday routines. But these are just a few things that we've, we've uh, like I said, we've got uh, things that are available for us. And if you can ask it, to, you know, get our website, all these items. So if you go to the website, you can you can get instructions for a lot of these items as well. That's great. So those are some of the things that come these, up with. I'm sorry, Sue. These are available on your website? Yeah, we've been able to put together uh, instructions and pictures in English and Spanish. So if families are interested or, or providers are interest, interested in, in downloading them, they would be available on our webpage under Child Services. Okay, so, so they go to yeah. org and then click Child Services. They will find that. Yeah, there's, there's, it's basically called Parent Download uh, Information, and it's just, again, you'll see homemade um uh, items for to encourage use of vision, but basically they're just toys. They're very, toys that will, in, will stimulate the entire. Will, really, is part of our global development. Okay, yeah. but again, is the first link that they would click would it be child services and then parent download? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Thank you. And Diana, I know that uh, last month when you were giving us some ideas in terms of cortical vision impairment and other means of vision stimulation, you have really incorporated the iPad as a more of a high-tech device, but it seems like so many people have it. 
can you share some tools in the iPad that would help with vision stimulation? You know, some of um, the, we use some really simple, um, easy, accessible apps that you can get either free or 99 cents, you know, um, from, you know, the app store. And um, the, my favorite is just one called Baby Visual Stimulation, and it's just, you know, patterns, either black and white or, some, you know, often with red is the ones that really grasp the child's attention if they have CVI. And it goes with really nice, easy music that, you know, you can either do it on a slideshow like where it goes a little faster. So some of the children who are more sensitive or have seizures, you, you I don't use that. But there's also a manual app option so you can do it yourself. Or if the child's able to reach out and swipe their hand across the screen, they can change the image themselves. There's another one called Baby Symbolizer, which is also um, black and white patterns with some red in it. And it's several images on one screen, or you can um, simplify it to where you can enlarge that one image and make it big. And then when the child touches it, they either get a, some sort of auditory response. And there's one image where there's a baby's face, and it's just a line drawing, a black and white line drawing with some red in it. And and there's a baby's laugh, and I, it is the most, um, it's often the most, one that gets the kids' attention the most. And I'm not sure if it's the laughter or the face yet, but, um, but that's a really nice one. The other one I really like is just a, a simple dry erase board that has, you know, different colors. So it's got red, green, you know, just like as if you have dry erase markers in front of you. And the child just taps it, and a mark comes up. And so... It's just an easy, you know, any kind of movement they make, they're across the screen. Even just the slightest movement will make a mark on the, the um, iPad, and so they're getting that cause and effect. That's and great. often looking at their hand as they're doing that. So those four were, again, baby? There's baby visual stimulation, and then there's baby symbolizer, and then... The one is, it's not called dry erase board, but it's basically, that's what it, that's what it is. Or doodle, there's one called doodle dandy or little fingers that have a similar concept of just, it's like a marker kind of thing. So a lot of times our kids can't hold a marker or hold a crayon, so just even the simplest finger movements across the screen splash color, you know, onto the screen and it gets their attention. Great, great. And I know that uh, for... Some of you, if some of you are coming from an agency or a school district, to, uh, this week there was a conference that was, I think, sponsored by the American Printing House, mm-hmm. or it was called Todds and Toddlers, Toads and Toddlers, or it was something like that. Yeah, Toad and Tadpoles. Yeah. Did you attend yeah. that, too? I did. I did. You want it to was, just very was... quickly just let people know that they can get these kits? Well, yeah, it's pretty. It's 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 a complex. It's a very complex kit. It, it's re- designed for kids uh, zero to infants zero to two, and then three to five. It's it's available for the American Printing House for the blind. Then it's um, the, the first section, the zero to two, the tadpole section. is a lot of visual efficiency and dealing with lots of has a lot of the APH items in the kit, and um, and then it also moves into uh, early literacy and emergent literacy and, and the toad kit. Um, it's I, I think if you were to go to the APH website, there's a great uh, a great a great explanation of the entire uh, product and how it's kind of evolved and designed. But yeah, it was available through it's available through APH. Okay, yeah, so if you're just starting up a program that you will be working with kids with CVI and you're thinking, gosh, I need, you know, some tools to use, they are really trying to make the communication and the vocabulary universal. And mm-hmm. one kid is for kids 0 to 2 and the other is for kids 3 to 5. And you can find out more at www.aph, Apple, Paul, Happy, aph.org. So we got a few minutes. I can't believe how quickly time has gone by so quickly, but I'd like to open up to questions. So you could unmute your phone by pressing star six, and you can ask a question to any one of our panelists. Okay, so press star six, and uh, we'll take a question. 
Yeah, this is Leslie in um, Northern California, and I'm an orientation mobility um, specialist. Yeah. And my question um, has to do with children that I've seen with CVI um, um, symptoms or things that I see them with CVI, but they've been diagnosed with optic nerve hypoplasia. But I still see the overreaching, the stimulation with movement, you know, all of the CVI categories, but their medical forms say that they are diagnosed with optic nerve hypoplasia. So where is there a fine line between CVI and other conditions like ONH? that you can talk about? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll answer that one if you don't mind. Uh, basically, we find that many times if the child has suffered from hydrocephalus or another type of brain issue, many times they may have damage to the optic nerve in addition to the visual cortex of the brain. So when a doctor examines this child, they can physically see the optic nerve damage, so they will be given that diagnosis of optic nerve atrophy or optic nerve hypoplasia. But in addition to it, the child may very, very likely have a neurological vision impairment as well. So this is why a child who has that situation will show many behaviors that are very similar to cortical vision impairment, even though you do see that there is optic nerve hypoplasia. Another example of that is a child who is born premature. This child might have retinopathy of prematurity, but the child may have also suffered from a brain hemorrhage that caused CVI as well. So that child with ROP will also show many behaviors that are very similar to CVI because they can have both. Okay, next question, please. I, 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 I have one. Dr. Yes, Bill. your name, please. Um, no, just me, Diana. <laughs> yes. Diana. Um, so I just I had a little an email correspondence today with Dr. Frederick up at Stanford, and I just thought I would because um, I heard you say neurological visual impairment, and I know that you often will use that term, and I I was hoping maybe you might sort out for people out there who are starting to hear cerebral visual impairment just a little bit about the difference mm-hmm. or the similarities and how people are starting to shift their way of thinking. Yes, and I don't know that there is a, a real, real strict standard, but mm-hmm. um, what we often will do is if we find that the primary, the primary cause of the child's vision impairment is due to something related to the brain, we often will label it neurological vision impairment. Now, one of the reasons that I'm an advocate of using this term neurological vision impairment is because it helps the other parents, the teachers, the other therapists to understand that there's something wrong neurologically with the brain. I think that that often helps these parents and therapists to understand that this child may have many problems, not just vision impairment, but they may have a hearing impairment, a motor impairment, language impairment, balance, all sorts of other issues. Now, within this huge category of neurological vision impairment, People may use different terms. They are now more often using the term cerebral vision impairment to try to suggest that there is something wrong with the cerebral cortex of the brain. So when they do know that the cause of the vision impairment is due to the cerebral cortex, they may call it cerebral vision impairment. Other terms that are also used is cortical blindness, And cortical blindness really means that the child is, in fact, totally blind. Cortical vision impairment is a more commonly used term that describes children who have some vision, but it's, again, because of the visual centers of the brain. And another one is called delayed visual maturation, where this is a form of neurological vision impairment where the child's vision improves with time. Now, as far as... Which terms do people use? A lot of times doctors will use different terms or you'll see different terms and it depends on the insurance billing codes. So, for example, many insurance billing codes will say cortical blindness because that is the only code available to describe a neurological vision problem. The problem with using cortical blindness is that many people don't know what is the cortical and they often assume that the child is blind. So this is why, again, 
defining things more precisely is something that's very, very helpful. This is Jerry, and I just wanted to uh, make sure that people know that on the Blind Babies Foundation website, which is www.blindbabies.org, we have pediatric visual diagnosis fact sheets that people can download, and there's one on cortical visual impairment. Those are excellent. They really are really helpful. Yeah, those are fantastic. And um, maybe then, uh, Sue or Diana, you guys want to tell the listeners also about the Birth to Five booklet that you guys are putting together? Diana, you want to go ahead on that one? Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> I'll help you. We'll do it. I'll let you start. <laughs> All right, thank you. So on the Birth to Five Vision Network in Southern California, we have been working hard at putting together a booklet for families who are just learning typically about their child's diagnosis or needing some assistance and support and navigating through the maze of early intervention and and into the special education world. And so we are very close to going to print. And in Mm -hmm. this booklet, uh, there are a variety of sections, um, including a physician's perspective, and thankfully to Dr. Bill, a, a optometrist perspective, which is mm-hmm. so great. And then we have parents' perspective throughout that really give families an idea that, that you know, the the support that they need, that you're not alone and that there's lots mm-hmm. of other families yeah. been on this road before and um, and resources yeah. in the field. You want to talk yeah. about Right. It's our intent that it's sort of a ways to help parents as they begin the process of understanding the diagnosis. And, in fact, our, um, our sort of our tagline for it is, is uh, dirty on a very busy highway, and it takes you through the steps and navigates, help, hopefully will help navigate families through the process, as, as Diana said. Well, this is really great information. And before we uh, tune out here, uh, would you be willing to share your email address if anybody has any questions? Sue, you got an email address where people might contact you? Sure. They can email me at uh, Parker. K-R-K-E-R hyphen strafasi, S-T-R-A, F is in Frank, A-C-I, at brailleinstitute.org. It's S as in Sam, P-A-R-K-E-R hyphen strafasi, S is in Sam, T-R-A, F as in Frank, A-C-I, at Braille. B-R-A-I-L-L-E, institute.org. Okay, I have a question as well. Um, sure. I have a 10-month-old uh, daughter, and, you know, this is all new to me, just the whole medical issues and the process, and, you know, I've been basically walking in the dark and trying to, you know, do this on my own, and having this is very helpful. Um, my question is, um, you know, just the prognosis and, you know, uh, further on what's going to happen in the future with her. Is she always going to be dependent on something or will she gain a little bit of independence and, you know, um, what kind of child care should I put her in? You know, because um, I do have to work and, you know, just do other stuff as well. So I, I was just wondering um, what yeah, kind of... Well, uh, let me answer that for you. This is Dr. Bill. And where do you live? What part of California or the United States do you live? I live in Los Angeles. Okay, great. Well, my mm-hmm. recommendation would be is that you could either contact Sue at the Braille Institute or you could also contact Diane Dennis and mm-hmm. uh, the TLC and you can actually have a consultation. And part of this is that we do find that children with cortical vision impairment, we find that many of them make significant developmental gains. Okay. And so one of the things that we all would help you to do is to give you guidance, for example, if you're looking at preschools and such. So um, Sue is a, a good resource, and also Diana. Can you give your contact information, Diana? Sure. I'm at D Dennis, and it's D-E-N-N-I-S, at T-L-C, and then the number four, blind.org. And then the telephone number in, at my office is 818 818- Seven zero eight four nine four eight. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, we look forward to talking with you. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Okay.
thanks. Yeah, thanks for calling in. And Jeremy, how about for people who might be in the Bay Area that need to get some advice? Uh, do you have a contact number there? Yes, my um, my um, email address is Jerry. That's J E R I at blindbabies dot org. God, that's that's pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blindbabies.org. Okay, well, this is really fantastic, fantastic. And if anybody has any optometric medical questions, you can feel free to email me at drbillfoundation, that's D-R-B-I-L-L, foundation, at gmail.com, drbillfoundation at gmail.com. So I want to thank all of our guests this evening, and I hope that you might tune in next month when we're going to have a discussion about retinopathy of prematurity. And again, this podcast is available probably within the next day or two at thebrailleinstitute.org and also at airsla.org. So, Mr. Burden, I want to thank you very much for recording this, and we look forward to hearing all of you next month.